be friendly. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn that to the book of Lamentations. We'll get there uh, in just a moment. Hopefully you should have a page that looks eerily similar to this one. Perhaps yours has holes in the side. Uh, as you're making your way toward that one-page outline of the book of Lamentations, I don't see Andy here. Or maybe he can hear me. The last time I sang 10,000 Angels was in a prison in the bottom of the high priest's house where they supposed Jesus was. It's a whole different ballgame there, boys and girls. It's a whole different perspective on it. Um... So that particular song has uh, uh, certain memories now for me that I appreciate. And uh, I can, I can all, when I sit in there, I can almost smell uh, the, the dankness of that particular hole we were in. Because that's all it was. You were given food from the top if you wanted anything, but that was about it. it was just, just a hole carved out of rock. And that's where you were. So, there you go. Book of Lamentations, as you and I search and pinpoint where this bloodline of Christ, this scarlet thread of redemption goes from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, we come to the second book that was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Lamentation, the key word here is sorrow, and it's significant in this book. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew title is taken from the first two words, ah and how. That's the uh, Hebrew uh, expression for how much their heart would ache, how much they would be in pain for and feeling empathy for somewhere else or someone else. In this outline, I have consistently uh, giving you a key verse or a key phrase or a key chapter. And really any of these verses in this, in this book could be here. But the key verse I assigned was chapter 1 and verse 12. The key phrase, renew our days as of old. This book is going to go from one extreme to the other to where Jeremiah is bringing the nation of Israel, I think at least a little around to their senses. And he's saying to them, you remember how good we used to have it? Bring us to those days of old. The key chapter is three. We're told about the great faith and the goodness and the mercy of God himself. And so as we look at the book of Lamentations, we see the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. We see a Jewish nation be taken captive all because... Well, if we're being honest about it, all because they knew better than God. The great lesson learned in this book is this. Sin brings misery, and God loves every man, even, even when God finds it necessary for man to be punished. Let's take a straw poll here. It's two questions, real easy. 
One, these are going to be two questions for you with children. One, you ever had to discipline your child? Shake or nod, yes or no? Still love them? Mm-hmm. You get it yet? Even though God had to punish them, even though their, their, um, their actions warranted that, that did not lessen the love that God had for them. As a matter of fact, it would have been unloving for God not to have corrected them. This book is seen as the sequel to the book of Jeremiah, and it's called The Tears of Jeremiah. This book's written in, a, in an acrostic form, uh, which means all the verses in 1, 2, 4, and 5, those particular chapters, uh, because they have 22 uh, verses, they all, deal, they all begin with the corresponding letter in the Hebrew alphabet. This is one of five books read in the temple of uh, the Jews on, see, that word Juzon as it's run together right there. That would be typographical error, at least number one that I have found here. Those should be two different words. But they're read in, five, in different days, on Passover, on Pentecost, on the Feast of Tabernacles, on Purim, on the anniversary of the captivity. Each of these five chapters is a different poem, and they, they fall this way. Chapter 1, the way of wickedness. Chapter 2, the wrath of God. Chapter 3, the weight of sorrow. Chapter 4, the want of help. Chapter 5, the wreck of iniquity. And there are at least three great lessons taught in this book. Number one, sin automatically has attached to it. Automatically has attached to it sorrow. That there's no way around that. Well, it's not hurting anyone. This isn't hurting anybody. I can do this and not. Okay. Fact of the matter is this. You may never be found out on this side of eternity. That still doesn't mean sin does not have sorrow attached to it. Number two. All this bondage could have been avoided. It, it, it was not the plan of God to say, I'm going to send them into captivity if it breaks down my absolute will and might and power and majesty. It, it could have been avoided. If they simply would have gotten out of their selfish stupor to look around and see what was going on, it could have been avoided. And number three, at times, and we don't want to hear this because it, it deals with us, but at times, God's children need to be punished. And I don't like that fact. Here's why. Any of you as children... Enjoy punishment? Yeah, me either. Any of you like to be corrected and say, you, ain't, you, ain't, you know, you're not doing that right? One of my favorite phrases to hear is that, isn't that right, Miss Brandy, is this, you're not doing that right. That makes me feel giddy with excitement and warm and fuzzy all in the, no. I don't like that at all. And for us as people, we don't like to hear that. But uh, the fact of the matter is, from the book of Lamentation, 
sometimes it is the fact that the children of God need to be punished. And so where we find ourselves is first clicking the power button on. Turn to Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We want to explore a topic tonight. Choose carefully your friends. I hesitated at one point to teach this lesson here at this particular time because what I thought was, man, this would be a good youth day lesson. And perhaps that's exactly where we have placed the idea of friendship where you guys need to hear it, but we don't. You guys should be real careful about how you choose, but I can choose my friends throughout life all willy-nilly. You know, I'm an adult. I know what I'm doing. You know, we're going to read about here about a nation of adults led by an adult who chose their friends for the wrong reasons and in the wrong manner, and it landed them in captivity. Let's start in Lamentations verse 1. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How is she become a widow? She that was great among the nation and princes among the provinces, how she has become a taxation, tributary. She weepeth sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. In the dictionary, there's a word that has been uh, apparently in use since the late 90s. Look and define. Uh, now and again, whenever you have an opportunity, the word frenemy. It is a combination of the word friend and enemy. Here's how it's defined. Someone either using you or someone that you are using in order to get yourself a little further ahead. So you treat them like a friend even though they are considered to be an enemy. How is it that we choose our friends in our society? How is it that we choose our friends? One, we pick our friends because they're just like us. You have a friend who's just like you. You have a friend who, that within the first five minutes seemingly of meeting them, you just sort of click, and at that point you can finish each other's sandwiches. Nobody watches Frozen. You have those friends who, who you just seem to hit it off with, and everything that you're thinking, they're kind of thinking, and, and the things you'd like to do, they kind of would like to do. I met a guy like that. Uh, at polishing the pulpit and then got a chance to spend a week or so with him in Israel. He's 
25 years younger than me, but he's a nice guy. He's a good Christian guy. He, he, we just sort of hung out and had a good time. We choose our friends because they're just like us. And sometimes we choose our friends because they're folks we hope to be like. How many of us have that friend who is much more successful in the job that we have? That we look down the road a little bit and they're more successful in life than we are and we wish we had what they have. And so we begin to sort of mimic what they do and hope that we get the same return on the same actions that they have. Only seeing their life really from an exterior point of view. We haven't seen the interior that, that went into all of those decisions that were made. We pick our friends by folks who are just like us or folks we want to be just like. And I may be missing a group, but that's about as far as I know. Look in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. How does Israel choose her friends? How does Israel choose her acquaintances and, and her running buddies in, in the nations around her? Well, first she looks at the security. You know why Solomon had 700 wives? I got that number right this time. You know why he had 700 wives? A majority of the time is I'm going to marry this guy's daughter so that they don't attack us. And I'm going to marry this guy's daughter so that they don't attack us. Then I'm going to marry this guy's daughter so they don't attack us. And this one over here. And then from those around me, I'm going to go out even further. And I'm going to go look at those second-tier people. And I'm going to marry that daughter so they don't attack us. I'm going to marry this daughter so they don't. You end up with 700 wives. Sounds like a, a dream spot, doesn't it? For all of you shaking your head, let me say this to you. You've never been married to me. Not that much of a dream, is it? I see you smiling. That's a nice way of saying, no, it's not. Security. Security is the reason why they, they chose their friends the way they did. I'm going to have these wives so no one attacks us. Israel chose her friends in the idea of the amount of wealth they had. Solomon, who we looked at just a moment ago with having 700 wives, is also the richest man to have ever lived on this earth. Yeah, but what about, doesn't matter. You can stack all of them up if you want to and compare them to the riches that God gave here outside of your mind. You don't think God can, who's the richest person in the world now? I don't know. Elon Musk has a lot of money. You think God has more money than he does? God don't need money. Israel's choosing it on security. They're choosing it on wealth. What can make them a more powerful nation? What can, what can boost their fame and fortune for everyone around them more than the wealth that they have? 
You know, Queen of Sheba came to Solomon's house and would make this statement about the things she saw, that what she saw, the half of what she saw, wasn't even told worldwide. She said, you think Solomon's got stuff? You ought to go to his house. It's insane. They're choosing their friends what will make them more powerful and more wealthy, more secure. Because their fear is they're going to be overrun here as a nation and then they will, they will die off. But Israel has forgotten the promise of God. The promise that God has said, I'm going to bring the Messiah through this line, which means this line is not going to die until Jesus gets on the earth. Let me ask you a question about the book of Lamentations. This, this one's going to be basic. Was Jesus born yet? Shake or not. Then you don't have anything to worry about. Keep going. But Israel was scared to death and so they began to choose friends, and uh, Lamentations 1-2 would tell us at the very end, her friends have all dealt treacherously. What a great word. Deceitfully. They, they, they became her enemies because you know what? They never were her friends. They were always playing that relationship to see what else they could get. Notice some other friends. Let's look at the idea of friends and choosing friends and that kind of thing within the Bible. John chapter 13. At the end of John chapter 13, Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples who were his hand-picked twelve who would, as we noticed this morning in the book of Acts, become those apostles on that particular day of Pentecost. And Jesus sitting across the table from a man that, that he obviously loves and has chosen to be his. And I, I think, and it's personal opinion now, you can have this just free for nothing. I think he likes him because he is very forward with what he thinks. Now, sometimes that gets him in trouble, doesn't it? Sure. But other times he stands up very boldly and says, You are the Christ, the Son of God. To which Jesus would say, Flesh and blood hadn't revealed that unto you, but my Father. Matthew chapter, 18, or chapter 16, verse 17. He's standing or sitting across the table looking Peter face to face. And here's what he says to him. Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter said, Jesus, you must be crazy. You, you have lost your mind. I'm ready to go with you to prison, if that be the case. And then he goes one too far. I'm ready to go with you to death. Whoa, Peter, you better back up. I don't know that you're ready for that. And Jesus, being the friend of Peter, looks him dead in his eyes. And he says this. 
before the rooster crows three times, or before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny, deny, deny me three times. And he didn't blink. He didn't back up from that statement. He didn't say, well, I, I know you're probably not going to mean to. I know, I know where your intent is. He said, these are the facts of the case. This is what's going to happen. How can the Christ be friends with somebody like that? You know what I find annoying? Within the Bible, I find it annoying that we have chapter breaks. Because I compartmentalize, do y'all compartmentalize chapters? I do that very frequently. I put 13 in its own little compartment and 14 in its own little compartment. And it's really a continual process of speaking after Jesus has said to him, you're going to deny me three times tonight. He goes into this, let not your heart be troubled. <laughs> you believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. When you read those things together, you begin to see the, the concern and the care that Jesus has for Peter. Peter, you're going to deny me. Yes, you are. Don't let that drag you down. Sometimes we look at it and say, well, then was it so wrong that Peter... Yes, it was. See, Peter had two options. When, when Jesus said, you're going to deny me, Peter had two options. After that denial, he could have come back as he did, weeping and said, I, that was the dumbest thing I could have ever done, which he did. His second option, he could, he could have chosen the way of Judas. He could have seen those things. He could have been so upset about it, he could have gone out and hung himself. be Jesus who would say, let not your hearts be troubled. If you look at John 14 and verse number 15, Jesus would say, if you're my friends, then you'll do whatever I ask. You see the care and the concern for one person to another? You compare that with Lamentations 1 and 2. You don't see any care or concern for the, the citizens of, of Jerusalem at all. Good Jesus and John, John chapter 19. Jesus finds himself beaten beyond recognition, finds himself affixed to a cross, finds himself grasping for the last few breaths that he'll ever take on this side of eternity. Enough breath that he can look down and say to John, who is one of those best friends, he's known in those disciple circles as the two or three uh, that, that would be along with Jesus quite frequently. I think those were probably his best friends out of those group. And he would look at him and say, Man, behold thy mother, woman, behold thy son. And as you and I look at that, Easy little little statement there from the cross. What we find out, uh, unless we are just uh, as, as thick as a milkshake, is this. Joseph is dead. 
Joseph can no longer, because he is deceased, fulfill the obligation to take care of his wife. Jesus is moments from dying, and he can't do it either. So he looks to his, one of his best friends in the world and says, you're going to have to take care of my mother. Somebody's going to have to. Now, we looked a lot at the way Jesus spoke to Peter here. In this example with Jesus and John, let's look at it from the perspective of John. When John is told, you're going to have to take care of my mother, you know what he doesn't say? <laughs> no, I'm not. You know how many folks I got to take care of right now? I got to take care of my mother, you know, and, and, and uh, John, you know, Joseph. They're, they're, I can't take care of everybody. It was from the point in time in which Jesus said, Behold thy mother. He said, All right, that's my mother. I'm going to do whatever I can do, however I have to do it, in order to take care of her just like she's my mother. Why? Because the bond between Jesus and John was so great. Not because the bond between John and Mary was so great, but the bond between Jesus and John was so great. Let's look at a guy in Luke chapter 5. Who doesn't even know Jesus. He may have heard of him. He may have uh, heard where he's come through this particular area. But he didn't know Jesus. I'm going to make a statement here. And we're dealing simply with the physical action of knowing Jesus. That paralytic man didn't know Jesus about as much as I don't know Jesus. I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. I don't know what he looked like. I don't know uh, what his group looked like. I don't know. Yeah, I read about him. How many times do you think people walk past this paralytic man in the square or over by the, uh, the well as he's trying to get water or this place or another? And they just walk past him. And how many people look the same when you're looking up at them? There are five friends mentioned in Luke chapter 5. We normally look at the four. We normally look at those four who, who brought this paralytic man and they, they begin to try to push him into this house and they realize that the house is so full that it's spilling out into the roadway and nobody can get in the house. And so one of them says, well, here's some stairs. Let's take him upstairs. We can pull back this roof and lower him down. Now, side note for you who were not with our teen group all last year, you want to learn two quick lessons from Luke, number, uh, Luke chapter 5, number 1. You need to have four friends that will take you to Jesus. Hold you accountable to Jesus. And number two, you need to be a friend to somebody and take them to Jesus. That's neither here nor there. That's an extra sermon for you. You can have free for nothing. Somebody there said, let's take this boy upstairs. Let's take him and put him down the roof so that Jesus can deal with him. I believe if I were there... 
toting this guy. I believe I'd be like, whew. Well, we tried. We couldn't get in there. But we, I might even gone home and, 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 and kind of been puffed up and thought, man, I did a good thing. Man, I, we almost got him there. We got him as far as we could. But I'd been telling myself a lie. You, wouldn't, you couldn't have got him as far as you could without going up on the roof and putting him down through the roof so that he can meet Jesus. And when he does that, God blesses, or Jesus blesses the paralytic man, raises him from his paralyzed state because of the faith of the four friends. Now, did you catch that? There are five friends, this paralytic man, in Luke chapter 5. Those who brought him there and the one who made him stand up. Why? Because this paralytic man can't do anything for any of them. He can't give them anything. He can't provide them with anything. They're looking at him as someone with compassion. Not as, well, if I do this for Mr. Paralytic Man, you know, he'll probably... They took him to Jesus because that's where he needed to be. Notice this other friend. Jesus... And Judas. Jesus and Judas. And you look at that and you say, those guys are enemies. Those are mortal enemies. Look here. Jesus handpicked 12 men. And if you think for one second the devil was only trying to get to Jesus through Judas, let me encourage you to go back and read the Gospels. It would be Jesus who would look Peter in the face and say, Get thee behind me, Satan, as he desires to sift you like wheat. The devil's looking at any opportunity he can to get into that group. He just happened to find it with Judas. There's no way in my mind not a, and there's, there's not even a consideration in my mind that I think Jesus, over that three and a half years, treated 11 of them nicely and one of them like dirt. Judas was as much of a friend to Jesus as Thomas or Matthew or Peter. And then in John chapter 18, after Jesus finds himself in the, the back corner of that garden, pouring his, uh, his soul out to God, Judas comes into that garden, leading a group to find Jesus. You know what he doesn't say? He's going to be the guy in the back of the garden. He's going to be the guy with the beard. He's going to be the guy who's short. He's going to be the guy wearing this. Judas said, you'll know who Jesus the Christ is when I go up and kiss him. And in John chapter 18... 
as we're so familiar with that particular account of Jesus' life, we see Judas marching into, oh my goodness, marching into the garden. And almost at this point in time, as we're reading it, we, all, we already have disdain for him, don't we? We're already looking at him like, this sorry joker right here, I can't believe what he's about to do. With our familiarity with that text, you think we knew it better than Jesus did? Mm -mm. Judas comes up to him, seemingly in a very familiar way, calls him master teacher, kisses him on the cheek. You know, Jesus didn't have to be in that garden. You know, when they split up at, at, lunch, or at dinner time and, and Judas went off to make his deal for 30 pieces of silver, Jesus didn't have to go to that garden. He didn't have to go to that place. He could have gone a hundred different places. He could have gone off of the Mount of Olives. He could have gone somewhere else. He could have gone the other side of the Temple Mount. He could have gone anywhere. You know, when Jesus is on that cross, and the very last thing he says, saying, it is finished. The redemptive work is done. Did you know he had Judas in mind? Still his friend. Still looking for him. Still hoping against what he knows as deity to be what the truth is. Jesus Christ died for Peter, John, a paralytic man and his friends, and Judas, and those who put those nails in his hands. Because Jesus understood the true meaning of friendship. It's not who can get me what or who can push me further down the road in this life, but friendship, uh, truly one to another, me being a friend to you, is me choosing what is best for you, whether you want it or not. That's exactly what Jesus did. He chose what's best for us, even if we choose not to follow those things. He still died for us. That price has still been paid whether I accept the payment for it or not. Because Jesus is the example of a true friend. And everyone you find in Lamentations chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2 are fakes. And if you surround your life with fake friends the end will inevitably be here. However, if you surround yourself with friends who want the best for you, then you have surrounded yourself with Christians as they're following after the very 
footsteps of Jesus the Christ. Wouldn't it be great to be a friend to Jesus? John chapter 14 and verse 15, as we mentioned earlier, Jesus said, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Well, what has he commanded us to do? He's commanded us to hear, Matthew chapter 13. He said, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. He's commanded us to believe what he said. Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse number 24, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. It'll be Jesus who commands us to repent in Luke 13 and 3. I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. It would be Jesus who would, uh, would command us to confess Him before God, Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 32 and 33. It would be Jesus who would command us in Matthew, Mark chapter 16 and verse 16 to be baptized. It would be Jesus who commands us in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10 to be faithful unto death. Very simple question. Are you a friend to Christ? Have you done what He said? If not, and you need to put on Christ in baptism, what are you waiting for? There is no better time than now. The water's warm. The clothes are dry. Everything's ready to go. Just waiting on you to be obedient. And if you have, but you've betrayed the Lord with a kiss, being a quote-unquote Christian as you put on your Christian coat as you walk into here, and then being something else out there, it's time to come back home. Right now, while we stand and while we sing.